a red alert. I'm not the hugest fan of the big gap sections in the cross field, but mm -hmm. you know what? That's not that big a deal. The scale was a little a little big, but the designs were solid, and a lot of them were based on like 1970s FASA designs, right? So yeah, that's I noticed that. Yeah, I so I'm down that. with what they did for the Starfleet ships in Disco, but the Klingon ships, I'm with you. They just didn't seem related to what came before or what came after. So, And, uh, you know, another, I had a, a big a big problem with the floating cells. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hokey. Did you ever see an old sci-fi show called Andromeda? Andromeda yes. Ascendant? I really feel like the entire jump forward that they did for Disco Season 3 was an attempt to do the exact same plot line as Andromeda. It's this whole, and it's a Gene Roddenberry idea. It's this whole yeah. person out of time goes to the future trying to rebuild the utopia that it had existed before they got flashed forward. It's mm -hmm. the same Dylan Hunt, Michael Burnham story. And uh, I think, honestly, Disco did it better, but they even steal like really simple like plot ideas like the ship ai being a major character in andromeda rami mm -hmm. was a cool character fucking loved her then we've got zora with this like nascent intelligence that's yeah. coming out of nowhere that Very was actually similar. some of the best discovery actually in my opinion was the was the storyline with zora mm -hmm. uh a lot of the other stuff i kind of had high hopes at the beginning of season three but they quickly dissipated and i think yeah. that anytime i had high hopes for the show or we got into a situation where you know uh it was going to be a little bit more challenging the wrap-up was always an insult right you know it was yeah. so quickly wrapped up and 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 you know i hate to say it but all modern track suffers from that you know it's nice neat whole, button yeah it's this whole like galaxy devastating possibility we must resolve and then oh they figure it out in the last episode or two all right i mean fine but it's yeah, I'm of you. Buttoned yeah. up very nicely. That's a victim that of the modern narrative. The 10 episode narrative where if we wrapped it up in episode nine, no one would watch episode 10. I mean, that's just the thing. My favorite part of, of Discovery taking Andromeda was getting rid of Kevin Sorbo. So <laughs> right there with you, right there with you. I will say, though, and I'm probably in the minority on this one. I think every season of Discovery was better than the previous one. I think two is better than one. I think three is better than two. And I think four is a lot better than three. Yeah, so I agree with you on that. Yeah, each season did progressively get better. They, they, found their, they found their way. I don't know if it became, and I'm kind of on the line, I say more Star Trek because, you know, a lot of fans are uncomfortable with the uncomfortable truth that that show didn't have to have a Star Trek label on it. And and but you know obviously if it didn't have a Star Trek label on it, would it, it wouldn't have been as successful. If it had just been some random show that ripped off Star Trek, which at times it felt like it felt like that. Yeah, I mean if it had been just like a random sci-fi show with the same rough elements, right? We wouldn't have gotten Strange New Worlds. We wouldn't mm -hmm. have gotten Lower Decks. We wouldn't have gotten mm -hmm. Prodigy. We wouldn't have gotten Picard. It was the herald to this new age of Trek. So. Thank you, Discovery. Yes, well, I'm grateful for that. Interesting. I love, cast. I love that cast. Interesting that we're on this topic because, yes, audience, we're supposed to be talking about our retro on Picard, but I was I took a walk with Cal, I think it was yesterday morning or this morning, and I was talking about Discovery and how Discovery's theme 
was not the imperialist colonial final frontier episode or planet of the week kind of theme. It was how does what we're going through right now reflect on us as humans? And Discovery portrayed us sort of in the contemporary political state that we're in now, where we're kind of, we've kind of lost our way from the idealism that influenced the 60s Star Trek. We've lost our way from whatever cosmopolitan influence uh, built a cruise ship in the form of the Enterprise D. Um, we're, We're in dark and gritty times. And so you've got this crew that is thrust into dark and gritty times. And the emphasis isn't on what's happening around them. It's on what's happening to them and what's happening to us and how discovery teaches us to look inwards. And that continues a trend that began, I would like to say, the last few ep- last few seasons of TNG and then the very first episode of DS9 with You Exist Here. And Picard and 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 Cisco's seven-year journey to overcome that and and look internally there as well. Voyager kind of went back to Planet of the Week. Enterprise was post 9/11 narrative, but Discovery said Star Trek started at looking out into the final frontier, doing the Planet of the Week, then looking in here and saying, "How can we be better?" I will say, though, I think every Star Trek show is a reflection of the time in which it happens. Like, I think Deep Space Nine is a complete, is a show that couldn't have happened except that it was made just after the end of the Cold War, right? It's a situation where there is a dominant power, its neighbors are not threats, but there's always something looming, and you don't know it too well, but you're worried about it. It's that paranoia of a new fear, right? In the 80s, that fear was Japan, right? The Japanese economy growing super fast, and that continued until 1994 when their economy went, like, what's essentially stagflation, um, which is, you know, when Deep Space Nine was being written. So I think that the best analog for the Dominion is actually Japan as a rising economic power threatening the United States. Same thing here. I think every Star Trek show is a mirror of its time. It's just that Discovery is a mirror of a time where a lot of social unrest is uncomfortable. So that scene with Takuvma in the very first episode where it's like, make Kronos great again, right? Is a stark reflection on what was going on in America at the time. And I think that that we needed it. And you know, it's funny. So if, uh, you know, everything that you're saying makes perfect sense. So that means that Picard season three, the Borg was basically the Republican party. I mean, I don't know if we ever really thought that the Republican Party was as dead as the Borg had been treated. I can only hope, but they're yeah. eating each other alive. It's and it's a last gasp. That's I kind find of myself the... rooting for Disney, and I'm uncomfortable. With it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Hey everybody, and welcome back to Beyond Trek Podcast. I'm Dag. I'm here with Renzo and special guest Brian Kane. And if you've already been listening, this episode's gonna be a doozy. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be good. Oh, yeah. Today, we're just going to do a wrap-up retro on uh, Star Trek Picard Season 3. 
I don't actually know how much we're going to talk about Picard season three based on that cold open, but we'll see <laughs> where we go. I'm delirious and sleep deprived and, you know, full of meat at the moment. Just got out of KBBQ. So, like, my mind is anywhere but, but serious. This is the order of things. It's all good. It's all good. It's surely the best of times. Oh, excellent. A couple of Star Trek quotes. <sighs> um, so, okay. Picard season three. Absolutely nostalgia bait. 100%. Yes. It was Lower Decks level nostalgia bait. And you know what? I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so at no. least this time it worked. I, I think... It Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and it seemed to service the story more than uh, some of the other nostalgia bait. Some of the other nostalgia bait that we've been uh, privy to over the last few years. I think Picard gave us in one season the, the combined dose of what we'd been looking for over three. You know that that yeah. first se that first season of Picard gave us um, Picard at his lowest. Essentially, he was forced into retirement after failing to galvanize Starfleet to rescue the Romulans. The Romulan diaspora had a sort of meh feeling towards anybody who wasn't them. Um, we had these rogue synths, and there was a very interesting storyline around all of that. A little bit of maybe data. And then uh, wrapped up in one episode, season episode ten, um, at 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 Ego Arcadia Part Two, um, season I mean, two. Oh, go ahead. I would still argue that the biggest flaw they had in season one. A lot of people say that the space battle at the end was awful because of the dodge of conflict. The two fleets didn't actually fight. I think that's a super Star Trek thing to do, right? Like the whole like build up swerve we're gonna find a diplomatic solution to it at the last second i'm into that i still think their biggest fuck up was the copy paste fleets yeah right like it just oh, didn't yeah. make any sense so the romulan star <sighs> empire collapsed this is like the built up little forces of the romulan free state and it's hundreds of ships and they're all identical and they're all in the same state like it just didn't make any sense right like it was very lazy <laughs> and we never saw them again <laughs> yeah so was the solve <clears throat> Excuse me. So was the solve. The solve was equally as lazy, and um, you know, meeting yet another Soong and having a whole planet full of uh, Soong uh, type androids. You know, uh, under the leadership of uh, of uh, Brent Spiner's fifth or sixth Soong, and uh, the fact that the fact that yeah, I, I don't know about you, just just to me, it seems like he uh, is. Um, more interesting as data and lore than he is as any of these iterations of so everybody talks about jeffrey combs being this like chameleon actor right but uh -huh. think about brent spiner's differences uh -huh. in all these roles that he's playing i think that they're on the same level the differences in how he acts when he's playing lore versus when he's playing like alton sung or anybody else are like leagues apart it is really impressive how brent manages to do it but i'm with you brian I think that Brent Spiner's at his best when he is lore and data and they're playing off of each other, which yes. we got to see in season three. And that yes. was awesome. And it was yeah. awesome. No before, none of that nonsense. Uh, <laughs> okay. Boy, we did have um, a tiny little bit of before. Tiny little bit of before there. Just, just, just I was okay with enough. what we got. Just enough. Just enough. 
I really <laughs> wish I really wish Picard season one had opened with because you could still hit all the same notes and maybe you guys will counter me and that'd be great because I'm super optimistic. But you could still hit all the same notes of season one Picard if instead of finding him sort of in the 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 aftermath of his fall from grace instead finding him in an amazing retirement and and showing you know starting picard with a news report of you know starfleet has rejected admiral picard's plan to save the romulans after the synth attack on mars and the destruction of the fleet and so they go into that for like two seconds and there's like wait we're getting a subspace broadcast uh patches in and it like ffn patches into the sovereign class enterprise e captain wharf sitting in the chair admiral picard front and center saying this is admiral jean-luc picard i am asking anybody who can hear this message to drop your hostilities with the romulans and help me save those people and he just calls out like every political win he's ever had arbiter of succession for the klingon empire and and, and just all these things and like you see like Gaur, a little thing of Gaura like Robert Riley makes a cameo that's like yes we will help Captain Picard and so that whole thing is Starfleet said no Picard made a phone call and 600,000 ships depend, descended on Romulus and saved 7 billion lives and I'm at, still not a fan of the destruction of Mars by the way I still think that's <laughs> a real stupid plot point Right, but then you get this scene where Picard is, is untouchable. This is the greatest human who's ever lived. He may be standing on the shoulders of giants, but no one will ever stand on the shoulders of a man who begged the Klingon Empire to help, and they did. An empire that otherwise you could have conquered the fuck out of, and they still wouldn't have helped the Romulans. Like, that kind of a scene would have set Picard up for like, okay, wow, Picard is the man. And then have that yeah. have it descend into tumult and and you know the, the the commodore o plot and that you could still go there if you had started on this amazing high instead you get well they said no so i went home and it's like <laughs> i think they were aiming for that though and that seems to me like it's that's pure patrick right there that's not any star trek writer that's patrick not wanting to go back to that next generation dynamic which he did do in the third season after being talked into it uh but i think having him on the bridge of the ship and having wharf there and having the enterprise of any uh any letter in the alphabet would have been anti where patrick was going and and i and this is just me this is just from what i've read i'm thinking he wouldn't have gone with it um would it have been better absolutely absolutely there's no question i think i do think though that we need to think about like what would have been the political fallout if picard had done exactly what you just said though dag right like starfleet goes it is in the federation's best interest to allow the romulans to collapse we're not getting involved it gives us an opportunity to expand pick up the pieces get some tech out of them whatever right and then picard's like oh yeah well, we're just gonna sit by and let them die no fuck it i'm doing this myself and then he entreaties I don't he know. does it like you said galron he builds a coalition to save them he gets the tamarians involved whatever right like he does it right i, I can totally see that as being treason i can totally see that argument being made and that's what forces him into retirement so would he have so then the question becomes would he have done this after retirement because i think the and, and you know this is just to hang off both of you, both of you gentlemen's points is 
the best version of Picard at the beginning of season one would have seen would have been in my opinion to see him take action but from the position of someone stepping away from the red tape and the politics and saying you know what I can do better as the man Jean-Luc Picard than I can do than I can be as captain or admiral because (sighs) I'm being held back by lack of political will I'm being held back by the status quo and 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 no new thinking. So activist card. Yeah, I can totally see that being a just, much better story. You kick out yeah. this total scene of of him walking out of you know Federation headquarters with his pips off, and he just walks into uh, you know the Riker, Deanna, Troy, Jordy. Um, uh, Crusher, they're there, and he walks up to them, and Riker's like, "What's the word, Admiral?" And he's like, "The word is no. I am therefore going anyway." If you, if they had opened, if they had opened with that, every single one of us would have bought, been bought in on the first episode because our heroes, who who had a kind of a send off in Nemesis, would have been at their moral and ethical high. We would have been able to be like. They did it. They did something amazing. They tied up the J.J. Abrams loose end nicely. And even if Picard is considered treason against the Federation interest, you couldn't touch the man. Yeah, exactly. But mm-hmm. you could totally see why it would like remove him from the Federation's chain of command. I totally he could. Have, he wouldn't have friends, right, in like the Admiralty. He wouldn't have somebody to go to there except maybe like a Janeway or somebody that's like, a real moralistic I, I would say like in the aftermath you know we flash forward 13 years it's 2399 they're doing the celebration of you know the rescue of romulus because it looks nice on tv but all the federation captains who had served under picard who said fuck starfleet and went to his aid they got demoted they got transferred away raffi could have been one of those people you know and they all have this bittersweet ill will towards jean Luc because they gave it their all and starfleet said uh thanks you're out and 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 that would have just been that 13 years of just bitter sort of malaise there he's on his he's on his winery you can't touch the man if somebody tried to assassinate picard it would be considered an intergalactic incident the klingons would declare war on you personally and annihilate your species as a result oh no no think about this right like let's say he succeeds and saves the romulan population right there's going to be plenty of Tal Shiar folks that just kind of like hang around just to make sure Uncle Picard, the savior Picard, is perfectly safe. And right, injured. right. Yeah. And that's even that's though, where we could. He's pro synth. Even though he's one of those, he's pro synth. Honestly, <sighs> and I've just been rewatching TAS uh, with the boyfriend, and there's an episode in TAS which I really think makes the whole Zapvosh storyline impossible. It's really like they don't work. So there's an episode in TAS where the Enterprise's computer uh, goes through some energy cloud or something, and the Enterprise's computer becomes like a jokester, a prankster, and starts fucking with everybody (laughs) on the ship, right? And at the end of the episode, uh, the Romulans go through the same thing, and their computer starts fucking with the crews on both their ships, right? Okay, so either Romulan ships have an AI, and this cloud thing made them decide to go fuckity so that means that romulan ships have an ai so the zapvosh storyline doesn't work or the romulans are so unafraid of ais that their systems aren't like air gapped so they ended up in the same situation in many ways it just doesn't fit with this whole like Hmm. don't trust ais they don't trust anything cybernetic like that 
So you can even in yeah, totally that I we actually just watched that episode not too long ago. Oh, my nice. wife and I, and uh, so you know, I also showed her another episode from Star Trek: The Next Generation's fourth season, and it's kind of their Manchurian Candidate, where they use technology that is very similar to AI, uh, and obviously uh, holographics, which are uh, you know controlled by AI, and they're using they're all bought into this technology. Meshing it, marrying it with Jordy's technology, the technology of his visor, to commit a political assassination. So there's multiple points at at which throughout Star Trek, we can say, okay, I'm calling bullshit on this. They're not they're not anti AI. They're not anti technological. There's been too many examples of them using technology even better than what Starfleet had. Two counterpoints. One, directly to the one from TNG, we get that fourth or fifth season episode, The Defector, where Admiral Jarrock tells Data Data that you would not want to fall into the hands of Romulan cyberneticists, which now sort of gives us that hint that's like Romulan cyberneticists would probably just dissect you and that would be the end of that. But we also know from, from Picard season one, the sort of lore that's established there is it's not just AI, it's AI that's advanced to a certain level. And that level is, of course, the communications array that was set behind. Though, the fact that there are Romulan cyberneticists kind of implies that they still do research and study it, right? Like, that yeah. is kind of against what the Zatvash believe. You have to know what your enemy is. Not when you just, like, toast the planet from <laughs> orbit. <laughs> now all I can imagine is just, like, Romulan commanders standing on a toasted planet with a skewer and a marshmallow. A little marshmallow, you know, generator. Would you like one? <laughs> roll, I mean, roll, saying, roll right? your boat. That's what they wanted to do to the synth planet, <laughs> whose, uh, whose name escapes me. But they wanted to glass the thing. Like, Coppelius. Yeah, Coppelius. They wanted to glass it. You know, um, and again, there's that last episode there that I still want to justify the whole Picard Locutus speaker talking to those synths out there um, and and saving us through there. And that would have redeemed him. And then season two, he can be an admiral again if he wanted to be. That'd be fine. I will say that <sighs> season one of, of Picard introduces to Rios, which felt like amazing representation just for me as like a Hispanic guy that like... I, I related with Brios and like his stories as he's telling them, right? Uh, I love that character. And the fact that he got <laughs> left behind in the past in season two made me very sad. Yeah. Right? Like the cigar chomping captain that goes dale when he wants to go to warp. Love the guy. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. He was great. And I think, you know, I think, um, I think a lot of Star Trek ends up coming up with, ends up uh, introducing it to these great characters and sometimes some not so entertaining series or seasons or storylines that don't catch on with us as uh, as much as others do. Um, and, you know, at the end of season two, we just kind of jettison these people and get back to the status quo, get back to where things were before Minus Seven and Rafi. Uh, but everybody else, you know, uh, starting with Elnor, who had the potential to be another interesting character, uh, and um, even Rafi, I think, ultimately, they're all underserved. You know, Rios, uh, what did they really give him to do? Die. He got to be captain of the Stargazer for a little while, which was nice. Yeah, and then he died. Three minutes. 
yeah. <laughs> for like three minutes and then he goes back it, it i don't know i i <laughs> i really hoped in that time loop that like because they basically grabbed all of them from the future and rios stayed in the past that there would be another rios that would stay in in the present but I was hoping for that too. That didn't work that way. It. And why the fuck did we even save Elnor if we just ditched him in the next episode, <laughs> next season? Like they blew up his ship. Elnor was assigned to the Excelsior. It. He wasn't on it. it. That's because uh, Metellus said so. No, I don't believe what, it. Wasn't he? A, wasn't he? A he trying to make us feel good. No, no, no. No, no. it was him. Flesh and bones. Yeah, Q. Oh, okay, Q so. resurrected him, and he's back, and that's nice and, and tidy. Oh. The Q non-linear thing totally can be okay with that, but like season two, for all intents and purposes, it didn't really happen. You could go from season one to season three, and nothing would change. I think I will... Victoria Principal woke up uh, from a dream in the shower and found. Patrick oh Duffy my gosh! Said, Pat, yeah, that's uh, that, that's what happened. To there Picard is nobody watching that remembers Dallas. Okay, just okay, nobody. Okay, 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 what about Newhart? Because you know you're going back thing, even yeah. further. Okay, Hi, Bob. Our target audience was born in like 95. <laughs> no, no, no. So there's one thing that I, so yeah, season two is definitely largely skippable, right? But I do think yeah. that the bookends of the of the season are good. The first episode and the last episode I do think do work well, right? The story with the Borg queen from who knows where uh, shows up on this ship, doesn't actually seem to be killing anybody, which we immediately recognized and thought was very sus, right? And then at the last episode we realized, oh, it's literally one of the characters that was on the ship already. I think that that is like a book ending for the story is pretty good. It's the mess that happened in between that I'm just not the biggest fan of. And I also want to give a shout out to the fact that season two uh, was where they started using designs from Star Trek Online in the show, which as yeah. a forever Star Trek Online player, that was huge. It was a cool way to reintegrate honestly something that was keeping the flame of star trek narrative alive for quite a while on its own just like in the 70s when there was no i know i'm going back before our key our core audience but you know it was the fans that kept it alive you know it was the fans that said no we're not letting this go this I'm, is going to come back in some manifestation i'm gonna get even more specific and lascivious with that it wasn't just fans it was women it was women who wrote the Mar the original mary sue uh storyline was a star trek story that's where the trope comes from for everyone listening go look it up and number two all the spock slash fiction that's what kept star trek alive <laughs> from like 1970 to 1975 and then phase two comes around well terry metallis did a really funny joke about that on his twitter right like he or no it was on reddit he was asked about how is it going to work on the titan or the enterprise g if the captain and the exo have like this history are they going to rekindle their relationship and his response was well it worked for kirk and spock yeah he said that Ah, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, yes whatever so... shit people may give him he definitely gets the fandom to that degree right if he can make that joke he gets it he gets it well you... how many showrunners throughout star trek's history have we had that have actually been fans and have been allowed to be fans minus manny Cotto from the last uh, two seasons of enterprise um it's pretty much been people who were 
really good at their jobs. And then there's maybe JJ. Not so good Sorry, Jar 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 Jar, <laughs> who literally said on an interview, you know, I always preferred Star Wars to Star Trek while he was still directing the Star Trek movies. Like, who I have, the, why? I have that gif saved on my phone for people who say yes. that. And it's like, I, I'm sorry, I stopped listening when you said you didn't like Star Trek. John Stewart. Yep. Thank you, John Stewart, because that's exactly how I, I watched that episode live when it was on. And I'm like, oh, forget it. Yeah. Forget it. And from that point on, I'm no, like, okay, don't, I'm if you, If you are given the reins of a pop culture pillar, don't go on national television and be like, meh, about that. <laughs> Take it seriously. Man, JJ's, JJ's reputation hit the shitter because he took two insanely popular pillars, one arguably more popular than the other, and he trashed them. And it's, it's and they've it's been recovering. Like, like the fans have been recovering since. Um, and so to get Terry Metalis to, to give us this third season super fandom send off, that was very nice of him. Uh, but I, I wanted to just revert back to season two for a second. The thing that I liked the most about season two was the banter and relationship building between Rafi and Seven. I think that's really the crown gem there. Rios builds that relationship with that woman, but we predicted that in like episode three that he was either going to stay behind with her or she was going to, you know, go with him. But they announced that the whole cast was coming back for season three during production of season two. So we knew these people weren't coming back. Um, so that that's prediction true. was there. Um, but they did a really good job writing Seven and Raffi, which they un kind of undid in season three to give them, I guess, a little bit more of a, a distance. It works for the story, you know? I mean, I, I think it kind of burst the bubble of a lot of people who were hoping for a spinoff that focused predominantly on those two. But, um, but you know, it did serve the story, just like it, it served the story to ignore Worf and Troy, which was awkward and should never have taken place. But um, uh, another, anybody else here have a problem with uh, Rio's transporter accident in season two? That was huge for me. I didn't like it. Oh, when he fell? Yeah. It was pretty silly. I'll grant you that. But I do like the two episodes of season two where they're in like the Confederate timeline. I oh, thought yeah. that that was deeply unsettling, very well written, very well shot. Good stuff there. It didn't end up mattering much to the plot other than that they stole the Borg Queen from there. Yeah. But it was a cool way to show us, oh, you thought the Mirror Universe was bad? Oh, honey, it gets worse. We didn't right? spend enough time there. We didn't. That was the most exciting part of that season. Yeah, I liked it. I yeah. don't know why I mean, they didn't call that the Mirror Universe. They could have. <laughs> up and darker. It's even darker than the Mirror Universe, though. Like, in the Mirror Universe, humans are conquerors. They take over the galaxy, right? Here, they're exterminators. They're purging the galaxy. That's worse. Yeah, but it's it's not like we've seen the Mirror Universe in, like, 25 years as of that point. We know how regime change works. You both watched Enterprise. So uh, was the Mirror Universe called the Mirror Universe there? And is it possible that this confederate period this could this have been the you know the predestination point this could this be on the way to becoming what we know is the no universe? no 
they it's distinct enough that there's things that just don't work for it right like that scene where we have picard going through his like trophy room right <laughs> yeah. there those characters we know existed and were some of them were still alive in like the deep space nine era mirror universe mm-hmm. right so i don't know well the Federation, or sorry the 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 empire the terran empire had collapsed in ds9 oh, that's true right that's so true. the klingon cardassian alliance had like taken over and then at the end of deep space nine and the mirror universe side like oh the rebels of terra have taken back parts of earth or some shit right okay but the css universe or reality yeah. is just spookier and you know it's funny too yeah actually in talking to you i just remembered that they were actually already in the 24th century not in the 21st century so that's what prompted that question <laughs> because i only watched these two once um <laughs> but uh yeah that's what prompted that question was i was thinking they were in the past during that period but they were actually in the future already yeah it was it, the season had really cool bones i just don't think that they executed the entire time travel plot very well like the whole story with the ancestor of picard, Rene picard. Yeah, very dead-end-ish. Well, and then they're like, yeah, she's supposed to discover a sentient organism on Jupiter. And like, wait, (laughs) we've had several episodes and a movie about this. We have. No. And if they were going to do that, why didn't they have the Borg tap into that when they hid on Jupiter? I don't think it was on Jupiter per se. It was on the moon, right? It was in the red spot. They were in was, the red spot. Yeah. Riker even's like, they hit a transwarp conduit in Jupiter. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like where she find where Renee. Oh, finds well, her. yeah. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. okay in any so. case, don't don't re don't ham fist a, a stupid rewrite just to satiate this this trumped up plot about saving Renee Picard. <laughs> yeah, and though I think John Delancey did amazing work that season in this whole like manic depressive Q who's kind of fucking losing it and he, he is dying and he's just trying to like teach his friend his maybe his only friend a lesson before he goes thought that was great uh but the structure around it was just bad this whole like proto Soong who's trying to like start the eugenics wars all that like it would just, wesley it just, taking off with what was her name soji it's not soji it was it was Dosh. the daughter asha? was it Dosh? no soji and dodge were the twins from season one they were asha i think was her name i think that's uh, right yeah i i don't know she was I'm you know genetically more... engineered and her her genes were unstable and that's why she was having all the problems that she was having and q just sort of wished it stable but meh, season two didn't really fly it just you know <sighs> you know i liked the uh, i liked the assignment earth callback you know um i really loved that a lot because assignment earth was a very interesting backdoor pilot uh, oh, to to what would have been the first spinoff for star trek uh from the original series with gary seven and who knows with paramount plus it could still be a series one day or a special well we did a backdoor with will wheaton being like hey come join the travelers the travelers were the bosses yeah the the travelers i mean did he mean like the travelers like the like him and his friend from tau alpha c or is he wanting me to get an umbrella policy what is he asking me for no brian before 
so Into Darkness is the worst of the three JJ movies in my book. But before Into Darkness came out, there was like a crazy fan theory and like investigation trying to put together things and pieces. And all the evidence pointed towards Cumberbatch playing not Gary Seven, uh, but what's the name of the one that's in that gets the telekinetic and psionic powers? Gary. Oh, uh, Gary. Gary. Uh... Mar. 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 Gary. I know the actor's name. It's uh, Gary Lockwood, but <laughs> but um, I don't remember his. Uh, his anyway, name. it's it's from the first episode or second episode, yeah. I think. Gary Mitchell. No man is Gary Mitchell. Gary Mitchell. Thank you. Yeah. Right. So everybody thought that that's what the story on is going to be. It was going to be this epic story that essentially retells the first episode as a movie, where they go on an exploration mission and Benedict Cumberbatch is this random lieutenant or something, and he gets these godly powers, and they're going to do that. And uh, the that would have been better. I agree. And the actress, the British lady... Uh, Alice Eve. Yeah, who plays Dr. Marcus, was going to end up being uh, the one who falls in love with him and also has the extra powers. Yeah, that's what everybody thought was going on, and they thought it was a really cool... And then we got into darkness and disappointed. Well, see, and then we knew, we thought that he was going to play Khan, and he's like, no, he's this dude named John, and we're like, oh. <laughs> and then he was fucking Khan. <laughs> Yeah, it was John. It was some regular name, some John Peterson or something, John Marshall, whatever his name is. And uh, then he turns out being Khan. Anyway. Oh my gosh, there was a there was a tie-in comic that came out around that time. It was like the trial of Khan, and it talks about like how he was grown and born and raised and what he did. And then we come to find out that Admiral Marcus had actually like like genetically resequenced him so that no one would recognize him as an Indian man and then even went so far as to give him like a sub-vocal accent so that he came off as British instead of the way that uh, Ricardo oh, Montalban sound I'm just like we we didn't need that that was not a that was not a, a niche in the canon I needed it just goes back to Jar Jar Abrams' whole like mystery box thing. <laughs> the wondering of what is going on is more important than the answer. So he doesn't come up with an answer until it's absolutely necessary when he's telling a story. He's had this as a TED Talk. He brags about the fact that he doesn't know how his stories end when he's writing them. He wants the question, the wonder, to be the interesting part, not the ending. Mm. Well, that doesn't work when you're dealing with a franchise that has 700 episodes behind it that make things explainable, right? You gotta have verisimilitude. It's not a one-off. You can't. So I think that that's part of why that trilogy of movies was so problematic. Beyond yeah, was great, really, but that, that's thanks right. to Justin Lin. Yeah, I thought I liked Beyond. I thought Beyond was great. I love Beyond. Best of the three. Yeah, I, the, I like, would agree. Yeah, it was certainly the most Star Trek. Yeah. of all of those movies and i do think jar jar abrams has a has a gift for touching into nostalgia which is why 2009 star trek was good about it right like that scene where kirk is uh talking about the kobayashi or is in the kobayashi moon he's taking the bites out of the apple the same way that in wrath of khan when kirk is explaining to savik about how he cheated he's taking bites out of the apple like, I don't like to there lose. is yeah great nostalgia parallelisms there right same thing he did with the star wars stuff he just can't move beyond that unless it's a mystery box and mystery box sucks so yeah it's usually uh, a red ball isn't it yeah you well, that, the Rimbaldi sphere right from uh, <laughs> Alias that brings us yeah. to the beginning of season 3 Star Trek Picard the Elios is running from who we do not know we know Crusher's on board and she knows how to shoot and there's a weird English guy who's like, let me help. And you don't know who this person is. 
But who do we think it is at this point? Who who did you guys say? I'm I'm eager. I'll, I'll tell you. But Ran- I think- random rando. I thought it might have been a boyfriend or something. Hmm. Rando. I just thought I just thought it was like a medical assistant. Yeah. That's just somebody like just somebody she's running with. That's all. Like notable this is a though. New life. A new life. You could tell by years. the ship. You could tell by the ship things are not uh it's just not it's not gelling. It's uh you see familiar elements uh from her life, from her past life, you hear them, but she's not in this cushy, comfortable atmosphere anymore. Yeah, she's not just the CMO anymore. I will say though, this about that scene though, Dag, those ships that were attacking the Ilios uh were also straight out of Star Trek Online. And they're of a race called the Alachi. They're the same as the Shroomies from Enterprise, the ones that like beamed onto the ship and tried to harvest people's triglycerides or some shit. Um, cool. Uh, and Star Trek Online fans are like, cool, they brought in another ship, but they're not, they're not the Alachi. They're just using the design. That's cool. We're, we still like it. And then Terry Metalis was like, no, no, actually, and then explained, these are Alachi ships. They were just sold on the black market. Like, literally making canon the name of a race that Star Trek Online had been using for 15 years. Like, the guy the guy knows how to tap into my heart, and I appreciate that. You have to love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They did a really good job bridging Star Trek with Star, Star Trek Online in this season. With an exception that we'll get to at the end. Yeah. So, Crusher... You know, we, we learn in the last episode, 20 years does something, does things to someone. She's got this amazing, you know, rifle etiquette where she's taking out bad guys. Um, and that's pretty cool. Uh, Picard uh, is talking to Laris for the last time. <laughs> only none of us, Bye. only she doesn't know I, it yet. <laughs> Bye. Um, Laris only gets to be in the first episode of the season. That's true. Yeah. Um, so Picard goes to meet Riker. Riker's still sort of doing his escapism thing. Um, they go to Guinan's bar. Nobody wants to buy the Enterprise D. Um, interesting thing. Um, we knew from the start that them being like the Enterprise D was the fat one. We're like, no, they're going to call back to that. That's going to come back to that's going to come back to us. But one thing that was interesting was Picard's logs that were playing on the Ilios in the episode where they talk about a signal the Borg sent out that they had to they had to contend with during the time that Picard was assimilated and how that tracks back to now where they have to deal with another signal the Borg are sending out. So I was like, okay, okay there's a little bit of tying that well let's talk about that right like look at the end credits from the first episode of the third season right they gave away all of their big plot points for the entire fucking season in the end credits the first episode we just didn't put it together right Until the they, end. yeah they gave us so much information yep they but... they talked about the anomaly in picard's head they did pop goes the weasel they had shaw's report for seven they, they had, had the Klingon cloaking device. The Klingon cloaking device. Um, the the museum ships were all the there. Blue red jeans. Worf's message to uh, Rafi. Yep. Yeah, they yep. were all there, and I love the implementation of how they used Pop Goes the Weasel as two FA. Oh, that was so. <laughs> Did anybody else cry? 
Did anybody yes. else cry during that whole moment? Uh, I don't know if I cried in oh, that God. moment. I, I I cried at multiple moments. I, that was just one of them. <laughs> I, I really like that because what it meant to me in that scene was like Data reaching out and going, is it really you? Because the changelings are out there and I need to know. And the only way that he could do that was by making them contend with something only they would really know how to deal with. Moriarty wasn't some psychotic killer. He had a plan and he had a puzzle. And if you solved it, he was defeated. And the puzzle was this eerie sort of missed note replay of um, uh, Pop Goes the Weasel. And the fact that all of us immediately could go, no one else was there. The only person who would know about that would be Will Riker. And Will Riker is highlighted on the camera moments before the defense mechanism is set off. It's like Riker, William T, Captain, blah, 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 blah. So it's it's the security system recognizing him and going, what's the one thing he'll know? Finish yes, the notes. Yes. And it's so well done. It's so meticulous. It doesn't miss a beat. And I got to tell you, I mean, I I gasped when I saw the uh, the Black Crow. I gasped when I saw the book. Oh yeah, we knew. I'm like I and I, I just I nudged my wife. Oh my god, it's dead. <laughs> and she and she just she's like, shut up. <laughs> so, but I'm like, oh my god, it's dead. As soon as I saw the book, I knew it was dead. It was a very effective way to ease us into it too, right? Like, yes. it, it didn't it didn't throw it in your face. It kind of built up over the course of a, of a couple scenes, even, right? And I think they did a really good job with it. And the fact that you know. Riker is known as the musician of this group, right? Like, he, whether he's playing a trombone or snapping his fingers when they're going to warp, like, he's the musician. If there's going to be a musical yes. puzzle, I expect Riker to be the one to solve it. And what an eloquent way to put that, to reintroduce the audience to this hobby of his, because we weren't going to see him playing the trombone. We don't have 26 episodes a season to do that anymore, which I so could have needed. This is the only modern star trek i wanted 26 episodes um <laughs> it was so great that know, he was calling out the so notes good. yeah he was calling out the notes. so good he was caught and then as soon as i saw that first step hit the pebble in the water oh. yeah the the, yeah. the 4k remaster of that scene from uh from uh encountered farpoint uh data the farpoint mission that was 36 years ago. <laughs> I, know, I will say I though, just got it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I am 0% musical, right? But I have a buddy of mine that I was like, okay, so here's this like thing that happens in the in the trailer or in the end credits for this show. If you look at the notes, can you figure out what song it was? And it took him about two hours to figure it out for me. And he's like, oh, it's Pop Goes the Weasel. And I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, so you did that before the episode before the episode i knew it was coming oh. so i immediately like went digging for the uh the scene with Riker and data in the whistling on the tree and i sent them that and he was like oh yeah this is definitely some kind of reference to that you know his friend hasn't seen tng so he doesn't really get the depth of it but i was like okay this will somehow be relevant and then i didn't figure out that the noises that were blaring on daystrom station were that until Riker started saying like huh be sharp. And I was like, oh, 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 here it is. Okay, this is it. Okay. 
I so I, I had a conversation with someone who I don't know if they were just particularly dense or if they were being um, inauthentic in their discussion, but they were like, I don't understand how Riker remembered that. He couldn't remember it in Nemesis. And I'm like, in Nemesis, they weren't playing the song. He was trying to remember the song from the scene. In Picard, he's remembering the scene from the song. It's the, the other way of memory. Um and, and he was just like, no, no, it doesn't make any sense to me. He forgot it. And I'm like, uh-uh. I, <laughs> no. you want to live in that world? That's cool. But that's not what happened on screen, brother. No. But when, <laughs> someone, when someone wants to try to attack your logic using nemesis or generations or insurrection. Whoa, whoa. You just, okay, I sorry. Like... We're going to take back gen- generations. Sorry. Well, I like okay. nemesis. Hey, we like the score. We like the score. We love okay, the score okay. for Generations. Right. The movie hit the movie, all was, however. All movie. I was going to say was there's a lot of research now about how music and sounds can trigger memory better than trying to remember something on purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So the idea that he's like, oh, that's what this is about. Like, I, I can totally see that as being how it clicks right to his memory. Yes, yeah. I agree. I agree. You know, he didn't, Straight up. He, it's your point. He didn't have the song playing for him. Of course, he wasn't going to remember it. Right. Well, and he was in a traumatic moment. He'd just been in a big-ass fight. The ship was crashed. The stakes of the Earth were all there. In the other one, it's just like, changelings are going to take over the, this, the Federation, and we're all going to die, and they're going after my buddy. You know, the stakes, they just seem never to go away. It's like that scene from Lethal Weapon. Like, does, does Trouble just, like, go looking for you? And he's like, no, it seems to know where I am most of the time. <laughs> and then honestly, how many And then honest, honestly, how many people have PTSD after having a fight with Ron Perlman? Right. How many? I mean, you know, yeah, I'm going to go back to before our target audience here again, but Beauty, is a Beauty and the Beast when he played Vincent, also with Armin Shimmerman. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay, yeah. No, I remember. And, you know, Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor, yeah. She, she played uh, Catherine. I'm still convinced that uh, Ron Perlman didn't need to wear prosthetics for that role. He just, <laughs> he just has a cat-like face. No, he does uh, have a cat-like face. No disagreement there. <laughs> I used to think he was one of the Thunderbirds when I was a little boy. Oh my gosh, uh, man, Ron Perlman, I love that little... man. That man is such a gem too. Like he's great to interact with, and he just is—he gives no fucks. He he holds no bar, or bars no holds. He's just all all genuine, authentic guy. Straight shooter, straight shooter. You don't have to <sighs> question where you stand with me. Can we talk I about? Appreciate his politics on Twitter too. Like real <laughs> up front, hides nothing, just roasts people. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can... Go anytime, ahead. anytime, anytime, any anybody is uh, is is uh, is roasting uh, in the manner that he does uh, in the party he chooses to. They're okay. Can we talk about our most recent scene chewer? Uh, Vatic is amazing. No disagreement. So yes, I will let you know that I hate Vatic. Oh, I hate Vatic like I hate Kai Wen. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So you like her? Hate her? I I I think Amanda Plummer ran away with that role and, and took it where no one was expecting it to go. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She did an amazing job, um, and and particularly when you measure the fact that the studio, the powers that be, always want to know what the big villain is going to be. Who's our con? Is the question that used to be asked all the time. Yeah, I, Who's I was. Our con? 
I was expecting a cry havoc moment out of her just for fun, but we didn't get that. She spun around in the chair. She did spin around in the chair. She did spin around in the chair, and then she fell to pieces. Like Chang. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we... I feel like she is an incredible actress, and then in this role, she really got to just, like, shine by being excessive, right? She often gets cast as characters that are quirky, maybe a little weird, but reserved generally, right? Vatic is none of those things. Vatic is a, a terrifying, outlandish, extravagant, and very much in your face. Alien. Yeah, that was a very alien performance, and I really appreciate it because too often you get an actor who tries to act alien from a human perspective, and you can tell. Vatic came off as someone who didn't just understand what it was like to be organic, but fucking hated it. Yes, yes, and, she did, and and she oozed that into every pore as, as like someone who's just in complete agony all the time can. She was also delicious at taunting, you know, she she taunted and she knew what to say to rat to rattle people's bones. Truly sadistic. Though she, I she knew think, what to say. I think Data's retort when he comes back online and takes back control of the computers is still the best. Monologuing right? protoplasms. <laughs> he came off like a like an like a stewardess. Put all your tray tables back in their upright normal position. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, and then of course the her last line: "Fucking solids." <sighs> so did she die a little easily to you? No. 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 I wanted her to die so much sooner, and she just kept oh, yeah, persisting. No question. <laughs> I just thought it would be a bigger challenge to take her out. It was interesting how phaser repellent she was, though, because Picard and Crusher had a several shots on her, and she didn't care. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, a knife took one out. But you know, we'll talk about that later. I don't Maybe. know the way the rules for new train changelings are very weird, right? Like we know old changelings, <laughs> legitimate goo changelings could exist in the vacuum of space they could turn into things they could make biological warp drive like they did all sounds of kooky shit right but these angry pastrami ones are don't follow (laughs) the same rules so it's it's hard to know how they function uh and for me the idea that you know you eject her out into space she freezes solid and then bumps into something and shatters like it's not out of the realm of possibility i'm on board Still not out of the realm of possibility that she could come back too, because you know, I mean, who else shattered? The T two thousand shattered. Not not the same universe, but um, I just thought it was interesting that that part that made them more powerful and able to elude our technology was also the part that contributed to their doom. That was a nice little uh, bookend and irony really appreciate it yeah it's a good trade-off right like it's a good show that oh they can pass through any scanners we can think of but they're no longer as immune to damage as we've seen in the past yes yes Uh, that 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 worked out i think the bone that i have to pick with that is i'm tired of the starfleet and federation causing their own stupid shit to happen like i don't care like 
I, th I do kind of agree with the people that Section 31 is overplayed. It was a nice gimmick in DS9, and when it popped up again in Enterprise, I was like, oh, okay, it, it still went back there. But then it just went full on. Anybody who is a weirdo in, in Starfleet is obviously Section 31, and... Or a Wolf 359 truther, you know, so... Or a Wolf 50, 359 truther, you know, because that's, that's what uh, Lower Decks said. Change things are real. Wolf three five nine didn't happen. It was an inside job. Love that line. I yeah. love that line. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I also don't like the fact that all three seasons, uh, a lot of the suffering that the Federation goes through is the result of their own choices, right? Mm -hmm. Like the synth ban is why Riker's son died. Right. Mm -hmm. And their choices to not help the Romulans is why they now have this chaos on their border. Cool. Got it. Season two, it's this uncaringness that leads to Hugh getting involved again. And now he has to show them a lesson of why, you know, radical compassion is what you really need, right? Like forgive and forget because now the Borg, a Borg is asking you for help, compassion, help them, give them the chance. Okay, cool. So we go through the whole plot. Now in the third season, it's the same thing. You guys fought, you guys were, Section 31 was willing to do anything to win. Here's how that pays off. They have won, and now you've got these guys who have nothing to lose and have these crazy abilities. All three seasons, it's a... I don't know. It, I, I'm with you, Dak. I think that they could have done something different there. I always feel like we could have... Um... You know, I always looked at Section 31 as the new equivalent to the way the next generation era treated subspace communications, right? Because in the original series, we were always, our crew was always truly on their own, you know? And being that it was in, on in an era of Westerns, it was really kind of like, we're the only ones out here. We have to make the decision. And in Next Gen, I always felt like Picard, Cisco, well, not Janeway, obviously, but uh, Picard and Cisco had uh, Starfleet Command on speed dial. They could just always tap into them. And I sometimes feel like it took the drama of a captain making the decision on their own out of the equation by having this intermediary third party uh, intervene and, and, and take away that decision from the captain. And I feel like that's what the new series have treated Section 31 like. Section 31 has kind of become this literal dumping ground for something that's counterculture to our Starfleet officers and to our Starfleet way of life. I agree with you, right? Like, the fact that Cisco in the first season was like, this is the backwater Deep Space Nine outpost, and then the first episode, they're like, actually, this is the gateway to the Gamma Quadrant. This is an important place now, right? <laughs> flips it on his head now he's got like a designated admiral and then conflict comes to him so mm -hmm. it's the center of the galaxy for the for the show essentially right cool picard he does things on his own he seems to take authority and has like seniority enough to do shit without checking in with an admiral but yet every like seventh or eighth episode some admiral is showing up and being like actually john luke i need you to do x y and z or it's the chai of being a bitch right like you have something always showing up <laughs> Right, so he can't really be completely on his own. Uh, yeah, Janeway is out there, so she doesn't have that issue. But yeah, um, I see where you're getting at with this. I agree. 
Yeah, it's just kind of this dump all. Oh, well, how do we find the answer to this? Let's have him contact Starfleet. Oh, why is this guy a weirdo? Oh, let's just say he's from Section 31. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a little lazy sometimes, and it does make me look forward to seeing how the Section 31 movie with uh, Giorgio is going to go. Oh. Uh, oh, I love Admiral Giorgio. Or, sorry, Empress Giorgio. Right? Oh, I, I think love she's her, too. a fascinating character. So I'm excited to see what they do with it. I'm kind of on the point of, like, why are we glorifying a horrible person, though? I mean, a lot of people's favorite That's character in Space point. Nine is Garrick, and Garrick was not a good person. Yeah. This is... I, I hope that some listeners can now have a really interesting conversation about that. <laughs> hey, we, we like lore, too. No, we True. No, we don't. We don't no. like lore. No. Okay. I was on Twitter, or what was it? I was on Reddit, and I was like, like describe describe your favorite part of Picard season three like a Temerian. And the number one reply was, lore when the partitions fell. So here's an example of character that was. Shran from Enterprise. Everybody loves Shran. His character goes through really cool arcs. But don't forget, his character tried to... Uh, checked in and got permission to destroy the Enterprise on two different occasions. He showed up to try and steal the Zindi weapon to use it against the Vulcans. He tried to start a war with the Vulcans once as well, right? Like, Shran is not some, like, objectively good person, right? Like, yeah. he's, he is complicated. Yes. So, I mean, yes. it, there's more as to is it. Her, as is his other character, as is uh, the other Wei character portrayed, Wayun. Yes. Yeah way in and uh and i mean i would even go I, i'll even cite a sillier example of people we all liked but we couldn't stand he really fucked with our our main characters harry mudd yeah my both favorite versions both my, versions. my favorite episode of discovery is a harry mudd episode so yeah i liked rain wilson's harry mudd i mean i know we, di we, we digress from definitely a lot like more wilson. chaotic than, than yes. the Harry Mudd that we got in TOS. But that, that's fine. I love it. And yeah. I hear Harry Mudd might come back in Strange New Worlds, so... I look oh. forward to that. I do, too. Yeah. I do, too. <sighs> but my point is just, like, we shouldn't expect organizations to be very black and white. A lot of characters are going to be mixed, right? I don't think that there's anything Empress Giorgio can do to rehabilitate her image. However, we can still follow her character and be like, oh, well, that's a good thing that, that she did that. Right, like, oh, she fought Wayland and stopped control. Thank you, Empress Giorgio. That's good of you. You're still a shitty person, but thank you. Wayland Yutani. I don't remember the guy's name. I thought it was Wayland, wasn't it? It might have been Wayland. I thought it was. But, Wayland. I thought but, it was. But I'm, I don't I'm making an alien joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have it as a hat. So All right, so uh, we had we had our Beverly Elios Star Trek Online ships coming on. We had our angry pastrami moment. Um, the band gets back together. You've got Rafi on this planet, uh, a Ferengi information dealer who gets assassinated by a wharf, and then this Vulcan gambler whose logical premises led him to a life of crime. I love that. I love seeing a I love seeing a Vulcan, uh, you know, use logic to because uh, criminals do it all the time. You know, our favorite antiheroes use our our people who are otherwise logical. You know, and the the 
the perpetrating of a crime is uh, is not necessarily a question of whether someone is or isn't logical. Yeah, that's exactly true, right? And I think that we see all too often in Star Trek, except for the most recent couple series, where Vulcan logic results in roughly the same thing for most Vulcans, right? But now we've got like this storyline with Angel and Spock's brother Cybok going on in Strange New Worlds, where it is very clear that he is logical, but he is not resulting in, the, he's not coming to the same conclusions as the rest of Vulcan society, right? And we've got this gangster character who is really well played, also like different, different result from same application of logic, right? So, yes. and the Ferengi gangster was just amazing. You know, I needed more of him. But yeah, I'm with you, Dag. I really liked how they got the band back together. I was a little sad that Deanna came on so late because I think of all the characters from TNG, she's the one that would have been most useful in a situation against changelings of all things. Might explain so, why she came in so late. It does. Yeah. It does. But that's what makes me sad about it. <laughs> so yeah. just to note that um, apparently there's a lot of 12 Monkeys references from the tv show here and the vulcan and the ferengi are no different the two of them play similar roles in that show as well um having deanna show up on the brig of the shrike i was very much like it's a changeling and the fact that the fact that that there was no mention of like where's kestra how's kestra doing is she okay i kind of was like I need to know, but they did mention Kestra several times throughout the series, so maybe she's just staying with her grandmother. Aww. <laughs> Could you imagine having Luxana as your grandmother and yes. what she put you through? What she put me through? Do you imagine all the shit I get for Christmas? <laughs> I mean, do you want That's a chalice of the... That's where I'm at. Do you want a chalice of Rick's? A or sacred like the chalice seven of Rick's. Of, yeah. Or do you want the seven rings of Beta Z? Yeah. Like, what do you want this Christmas? Totally. It's, all, it's, it's an old rusty pot with mold at the bottom. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I was absolutely, um, I, as that was my headcanon, was like, she went to stay with, uh, with her grandmother during this whole escapade. But, um,. So yeah, that gets us back to to Troy and, and some great banter with Jonathan Frakes, I thought. And then when Worf came to rescue them, an even more embarrassing like moment from Worf about it has been many years since I have seen you and I have not forgotten your face. And blah 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 blah. <laughs> it's like you Worf, even hear yourself, Worf. You've been through like three wives since her. Like chill. <laughs> Isn't it funny though how in that moment and throughout all of season three you have all of these moments where they're calling out things that maybe perhaps they felt were ridiculous and didn't land very well but they're part of canon now like picard being uh you know a partial synth you know um riker and troy living in a planet uh making pizza when she wants to you know when she wants to obviously kind of she's kind of the equivalent of i'd rather move back to the city kind of thing i actually um, really liked that right like they managed to correct some of the mistakes that were made in the earlier two seasons mm -hmm, right like mm -hmm. 
maybe I'm crazy, right? But I don't mm-hmm. think Deanna was ever the rustic live in the mountains type. She Thank you. Thank you. She wasn't. As, yeah, she was raised as like Beta Z royalty, essentially, right? She mm-hmm. is the daughter of the prominent ambassador. She's not really going to be the roughing it, cooking for you kind of person, I think. Right. So she's definitely urban. Yeah, Meanwhile, so sacrifice to keep their child safe, to keep to do that. I definitely can see her making the sacrifice for her kid. But once that's no longer the driving factor, she wants to move. go back. Yeah, she wants to go back to Paris. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly what I thought, man. Um, oh, can you imagine and, how much Waxana dotes on Kestra after Thaddeus' death and how much that must have reminded her of her own Kestra? Like, I would love to see a show where Waxana goes on a war path. Because somebody, like, because Kestra didn't come home on time. <laughs> okay, all right, so hold on. <laughs> Going back to your question from your first season, like, rewrite, right? Where Picard manages to just bring together the galaxy to save things. Think of the favors he can pull from Luxana, right? Like, Luxana, bring every Betazoid transport you can find, and I'll go on a date with you. She shows up, she'll show up. Right? That kind of thing. Or Luxana, bring all the Zeppelites. Your husband used to be a Zeppelite, right? Like, I will owe you a favor. Luxana will show up, right? Like, that's another avenue of influence that Picard has that goes untapped uh, for a really good reason. You know, Majel Roddenberry passed, but still, it'd be such an interesting thing for his character to be able to do. But I mean, he, he has. Um, I'd like to think that he has like an emotional sliver of, of Sarek. So he can compel Vulcan. And he has, you know, he has suffered greatly at the hands of Cardassia. And maybe there's some Cardassian Galar class warships that, like, like the old regime was not a friend to you. We're here to try and make up for what we've done. Um, you got, you've got the Klingons. You've got the Temerians. Uh, Freaking, you know, what if the Zakdor, or was it Zakdorn? The guys with the wrinkles on the forehead. The guy, no, the that, that no. Strategema. Strategema. No, yeah. I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking Zach Dorn. I'm thinking uh, John Doe. Oh, the one who was in Transfiguration. Right. Like. Oh wow, what is he? He's probably like a John Doe. You know, or, Kev, Kevin Uxbridge shows up and is just like he's transcended. <laughs> the Aldeans. Remember the Aldeans, the one that had the uh, planet that was close. The children. Right. They wanted to steal Wesleyan kids. Yeah. They owe Picard a favor. There's one that has like crazy technology that they could have used to help save the Romans. Or the alien and his wife from Survivor. Yeah, right. Like there's just so many different untapped people who owe him a favor, literally. Freaking get to see. That would have been a good cameo for (laughs) Okana. Okana shows up like a fleet of uh, of mercenary mercantile ships. Sorry, gotta go. I I got some bad blood with those guys. Um, No, it just Ferengi as well, right? Like, yeah, man, I get goosebumps thinking about how that could have really like ushered Picard into an era at warp speed instead of trying to pick up from what was basically old man Logan in France. Um, so back to season three, we've talked about. Uh, the Shrike, we've talked about... We haven't talked about the Shrike very much, actually. Vatic. Okay, to. well, we talked about Vatic. Let's talk about that. the Shrike. 
I love the name. I love the way its name was relevant to its tactics, and I love the t the, tr the the portal gun. I thought that it was a really cool use for it, uh, and the thing looked badass. Oh, it was so so cool, yeah. man! I uh, it, it was it was probably. I, I don't know. It seemed a little marvelesque to me at first, but only in the best possible ways. See, I was screaming, this is a balloon ship. It's got that underslung little deflector with the arms poking forward. This is some kind of rebuilt Breen ship. And then we find out that she's literally a changeling. And I'm like, oh, well, I mean, that kind that of makes sense. works. It, it works. Yeah. So, yeah. That could, that could be a thing. Man, having the Sona show up because they owe the Baku owe, owe them a flavor a favor. <laughs> we keep going back to this. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna write it. I'm gonna. It's gonna go out. I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, I love the Shrike. I love that they acknowledged that the portal gun was a red herring in universe. <laughs> we were all like, "Oh, cool too. portal gun!" And then they're like, "Nope, the portal gun is not actually what the thing is." Oh, oh, okay. Um, but it's cool. I'm all like trying to think in portals and everything. That whole scene, I was like, yes, so uh, we're on the Titan, and if there's a portal that opens ahead of us, fire phasers at this, ve at this ve uh, vector, and automatic, like, have full stop on, on a dime, like, your finger hovering over that button, we're not going to go through another portal. Come on. Yeah, I always I felt like it just kept flying. I'm like, stop, full stop. It, there's momentum. It takes a second. There's no, no momentum no. in space. What I will say though is that until the last episode, there was no proof that the that the Titan had phasers. Every time it was trying to hit the Shrike for something, fires three torpedoes. <laughs> then we finally see the thing wrecking and firing twelve phasers in every direction when it's flying through the Starfleet groups. Yes. Right? Yeah. Or or when he, try uh, when Picard when he Picard when Picard lit up that torpedo and blasted the um, well the shrike part. and there was yep. that other part where they fired torpedoes at the shrike and the shrike opened portals to have the torpedoes appear aft and i would have been like as soon as those torpedoes were launched i'd be like have your finger on the disarm button because they're going to open a portal and they're going to come back at us and so you press disarm or you're like activate targeted seeking use the ai on the torpedo so they don't hit our own fucking ship stupid and then you see the torpedoes <laughs> go out and then they curve back it's like your target is at this these coordinates if you're going to go anywhere but those coordinates disarm and reassess hey, well, think yeah. this way, right the technology behind the portal gun is so new and experimental that whatever logic systems exist on those torpedoes were probably like we're here now we're over there what boom they don't they don't have like any sort of logic to accommodate like moving linearly and then being somewhere else you know if yeah, we'd had a portal know, gun for the kobayashi maru that wouldn't be a problem <laughs> But imagine what a hell of a cool shield that is to like you're being bombarded from one side so you throw up a portal that is directly back at themselves and then you uh, can beam you can beam you can drop your shields and beam people over to your ship while the klingons are shooting at you and then raise shields drop the portal and get the hell out of dodge imagine if space dock had had the portal weapon oh this massive fleet of starfleet ships is going to try bombarding me for a couple of hours 
Now it's shooting at themselves. Oh, they're coming from this angle now? New portal. Just a, just a, oh my gosh, just a scene inside the, the, inside the space dock. It's got Rutherford being like, hey, almost, I almost got this. Hold on, tweak. And just a bubble appears. And Mariner's like, yay, Rutherford, ghost, destroy those Starfleet shit. Oh, damn. Oh, there's already a bunch of reunions going on in all the portals because of how many we've had opened up, right? It's like, hey. Hey, you're trying to destroy Starfleet too? Hey, you too. Oh, come on, let's meet for drinks. Quarks after Quarks oh, after man. the Enterprise goes down. You know, there really ought to be a new like uh mass prefix signal that's like, oh, our ships are commandeered again. Bloop. We just we just turned them off. Can somebody take that uh that uh, that guy and put him on that planet where the dilithium is and make him emotionally distressed. We're getting attacked by all of our ships. Even phones have location, uh, the ability to turn off location devices. You're telling me the ships and this interconnectivity, they can't turn mm -hmm. it off. Well, you know. We were so talking about... I, I oh, think sorry. that we're misunderstanding the way that the uh, fleet formation thing works. I don't think it's meant to be an override like the way that they present it in the last episode i think it's meant to be something that the crews of these ships can enable and disable at their choice but they can't in this situation because the override signal is being sent modified by the borg that's why we see borgy shit popping up on all the screens right mm -hmm. i would think that under normal circumstances if you've got like 40 starfleet ships and you enable fleet formation and then one of the ships goes oh shit uh we're having a warp core problem we're not going to follow the ship. We're not going to follow the fleet. They'll disable their fleet formation, pull back, do whatever they have to. And it's not like they have to like fight for control back of their ship. It's just like the captain pushes button. But when it's an override signal by the Borg, who've been planning to use this thing like this, eh, probably different. So yeah, yeah, I can buy yeah. that. Uh, how do we feel about the trope of? The kid who suddenly learned that he was a synth and needs to, I mean, he's a Borg and needs to uh, destroy the Federation. Not going to lie, Jack Crusher proved himself to be real dumb in that last episode, right? Yeah. Like, the decision to go, oh, the Queen doesn't know what I am. She can't handle me. I'm going to go fuck her up. It's just like, bro. She's been trying to communicate with you the whole this. time. Yeah, she's been trying to get you this entire time. Now you're just going to do what she wants? Like, she's been doing this longer than, well, you have any idea, so... I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna take a sec to seg into the Borg Queen, last week, Renzo and I did a pre-episode 10 prediction, and one of the things that I suggested was that uh, the Borg Queen was gonna be, like, ugly head, like, half-robot, and we got that. And that, to me, means that maybe Daystrom Station had also kept the Borg Queen's remnants from Star Trek First Contact. And that the Changelings grabbed those, too. But that Queen may have been latently connected to the Collective, and that's why she has the memories of that neurolytic virus that Jane, old Janeway dropped into the Collective basically said basically admitting that the collective's been essentially offline since then and she was trying to bring it back and this was the this was her last ditch effort and the reason that the the necro the drones were necrotically being absorbed was because she was reflushing herself i agree yeah. with that 
I think actually, I, I don't know about you guys, but I actually thought that was the uh, same queen. It was the same voice actress. Well, it, yes, yes, same voice actress, uh, different actress playing her physically, but actually in the story, the same queen that met up with Jane. Well, Alice yeah, Cridge played that queen as well. Alice Cridge played the queen in First Contact. She played mm-hmm. her at the in Endgame. Um, same actress, different timey-wimey thing of I queen. Would, I would generally argue that there's only ever been one board queen until Gerardi mm-hmm. came around, right? Mm-hmm. Like, every board queen has every memory of the previous ones to the very instant of the previous one's death, right? Thank it's you. A, that's, that's kind of what I mean. I mean, the Confederate Queen d- told us that they have like a, a fourth dimensional memory. They can see across the timelines. And so whether or not this Borg Queen happens to be the remains of First Contact Queen, you know, she would still have the memories of what that queen went through. But I still like the idea that this queen was just refleshing herself because Picard melted her and then broke her back like that's cool (laughs) yeah yeah that is a nice thought that is a nice thought i feel like they would have mentioned it though and generally speaking they were trying to figure out what got stolen from daystrom right if something as like significant as the previous board queen's head and spine went missing too somebody would have said something Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But and they didn't say anything about... about Picard's body. Like, there's not like an inventory with RFID tags. You know, you just wouldn't know. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't trust an RFID tagged facility like that. Okay, but if somebody takes a monitor from my work, the alarms go off. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is this is more like the storage location at the end of Indiana Jones, right?